I want you to think with me for a moment about how history is recorded. It follows major events like the founding of a nation, the establishment of a monarchy, wars, peace treaties, pandemics. And in each of those events, usually prominent figures are put forward as people to remember. Remembered by wise speeches or important decisions they have made or their power. And the histories of our nations often put forward positive figures as people to emulate, to hold in a high esteem. But I think there's a temptation to focus too much on humanity when we think of history. You see, we hone in on ourselves and we hone in on people because we want to think of ourselves as good, capable beings. And what we often do is we neglect to see the hand of God that is behind every event in history. What we find in the book of Exodus is a historical record of the people of Israel. And I believe that as we continue to observe this story closely, what we're going to find is the accounts within don't centrally focus on people. We will see some prominent characters like Moses, Pharaoh, Aaron, and the people of Israel. But church, they are not the main characters of this historic record. And the truth is that there is no human being apart from the incarnate Christ throughout all of the Bible that ever becomes the main character of the story. And the reality is there is no human being that ever becomes the main character of all of history. Everything is about God. And I think our passage today highlights this truth. You see, when we approach Exodus chapter 3, we're going to be tempted to think that it's about Moses, about his calling, or his humility, or his weakness. But what we'll find is that as the author compiles this narrative, his goal is not to set our minds on Moses as the deliverer of Israel, but to introduce us to our true deliverer. And in doing so, he's going to reveal several things that we need to learn about our God. Things that I believed are designed to make God the center of our thinking and our affections. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 3 and to seek to have our eyes open to wonderful truths about our great God. As we turn the pages from Exodus chapter 2 and the groanings of Israel to chapter 3, we first see in verses 1 through 6 that God is holy yet personal. Look at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The last time we saw Moses, he struck an Egyptian, fled from Pharaoh to the land of Midian, rescued Jethro's daughters, married Zipporah, and had a son named Gershom. And here... 
we see that Moses had fallen far from his high position within the palace of Pharaoh. And he's now just a shepherd of his father-in-law's flock. And as he's leading this flock to find good pastures, he comes upon Horeb, also known as Sinai. You may be more familiar with that name, which is the mountain where God later would give the law in the form of the Ten Commandments. And I think as the author identifies this spot as the mountain of God, did you notice that in verse 1? He begins to show that this section is about God. It's communicating a truth about God. Because when we see the mountain of Sinai later in Exodus chapter 19, what we're going to read about is that it was wrapped in smoke because of the Lord. And he had descended upon it. And that the whole mountain trembled. And the voice of the Lord was like thunder. It would have been an awesome sight to behold. And the author is pointing to that moment now in this portion of the record, reminding the people that are reading this story of the awesome presence of God. And this concept continues to grow as we see the emphasis that the author places on the Lord's presence in verses 2 through 4. Pick back up with me in verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. What an amazing story and picture. Now the phrase, the angel of the Lord, can be a little difficult to understand. And in his commentary, Philip Ryken points out that it could be referring to one of the angelic beings who serve God in glory as though they are reflecting the glory of God to Moses. But most scholars agree that because it is closely identified with God in verse 4, it really should be considered a visible manifestation of the invisible God. Did you notice how verse 4 points to this being God himself? Verse 4 says, When the Lord saw Moses, and God called out to him. Now because of this verse, and because of the additional times throughout the Old Testament where we see this phrase, angel of the Lord, connected to the presence of God, many suggest that it is a, it is a pre-incarnation appearance of, the, of God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm personally convinced of this, but I would encourage you to continue to study on your own and pay attention to its use throughout the Bible. But whether it is an angelic being reflecting the glory of God to Moses or it is God the Son appearing and showing that glory, the point of the author is to signify this moment again as an awesome experience of the presence of God. And what we see that this means gets even more defined when we start to examine Moses' reaction and his discovery of being in the presence of God. Notice first how the bush is described twice as unique. In verse 2, it was burning, yet it was not consumed. And in verse 3, we see again that the bush is not burned. 
What an amazing sight. And then you notice that the Lord personally beckons Moses to come closer, using his name twice to draw him in. Now, before we move on to verse 5, I think we should put ourselves in Moses' shoes for a moment, or sandals. Think about what you would do if you saw this bush. Everything is piquing your curiosity. You're inching closer. I need to see what this is. You might want to place your hand inside of the bush to see if you are burned as well. And then all of a sudden, you're summoned to approach closer by a voice calling out. So you begin to walk forward. Maybe timidly. Now, feel the interjection of verse 5. Then he, being God, said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. You're stopped in your tracks. To this day, removing one's sandals is a sign of respect in many of our eastern countries. And when it's connected to a place of worship, it communicates reverence and awe and an awareness of unworthiness. Now, what's most interesting is that this is the first time the word holy is used in reference to God in the Old Testament. So church, this is the climax of this portion of the story. God is introducing himself to Moses in a way that he hasn't yet in the Bible. He is holy. He is holy. So let's think about what that means. We say the word holy a lot. We sing holy, but what does it mean that God is holy? Well, the basic meaning of holiness is separated, set apart. God's holiness means he is set apart from everything. Not simply in purity or righteousness, but in complete otherness. His holiness communicates a distinction between the creator and the creation. And God telling Moses not to come closer emphasizes the distance between himself and Moses. But we should also recognize a conclusion of this otherness of God. For him to be completely set apart from everything means that he is infinitely more valuable, infinitely more perfect, and infinitely more worthy to be feared and adored. God is holy. Let that sink into your hearts. God is holy. Now, this is where it starts to get good. Look at verse 6. And God said to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses' response is completely appropriate because of God's holiness. But did you notice how God shows that while he is holy, he is personal? He describes himself as the personal God of specific people. A God who met together with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And the God of Moses' 
Father. So the beginning of this chapter reveals to us that God is holy. He is set apart. He is distinct from all of creation. He is infinitely valuable, perfect, and awe-inspiring. And yet, He is also personal with His people. What an awesome God. The next thing that Moses reveals about God is in verses 7-12. through And it is that God is compassionate and present. Look with me at verses 7 through 9. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Just think with me on the actions God describes of himself. In verse 7, he says, that he has seen their affliction, heard their cry, knows their sufferings. In verse 8, he says that he has come down to deliver them and to bring them out of Egypt. In verse 9, he says that the cry of his people Israel has come to him and he has seen the oppression of the Egyptians. Hopefully you're noticing that the ideas of seeing, hearing, remembering his covenant, and knowing his people's oppression are repetitions from Exodus 2, 23 through 24, where Israel was groaning in cries to God. And we see that God saw, and he heard, and he knows. And now we see God coming down with direct involvement in their deliverance. Then look at the interchange between Moses and God. It's the first of several that we'll see over these next couple chapters in verses 10 and 12. God says to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God tells Moses, I'm going to send you to be involved in this deliverance. And Moses begins to question his ability to be a part of this. And God says in compassion, I will be with you. And he gives him a sign. Do you see, church? Our God is compassionate and present in the affairs of his people. He sees, he hears, he knows, and he will be with us. Now, before moving on, I really want to have an observation from this section really land on our hearts. 
Did you notice how God answered Moses in verse 12 when Moses said, who am I? He doesn't answer how we might expect. He simply says, I will be with you. Doesn't matter who you are. I will be with you. And from this, I want to draw an implication for us. You see, the best answer to the question, who am I? when we are called to do something by God, is not, this is who you are, or even, this is who you are now in Christ. The best answer to that question is, God will always be with you. That's what we're banking on. It's the comfort God gives to Joshua as he follows Moses' leadership in Joshua 1.5, where he says, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. It's the way God answers Gideon, who questions, like Moses, his ability in Judges 6.16. But I will be with you. It's how God responds to the young and fearful prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.8. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. And it's the promise, church, that Jesus gives in the Great Commission in Matthew 28.19 and 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, we don't need to hear who we are. Those are marvelous things. God has made us amazing things in Christ. What we need to be reminded of is that our God is always with us. So if you don't know how you are able to do this thing that God is calling you to do, look here in this passage and know that God will be with you in it. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. The holy God is always compassionate and present with his people. That church is the wonderful truths we are shown just through this first half of this passage. What an awesome God. Now, As we move to verses 13 through 15, we see there is more for us to learn about this God. And here we are shown that God is the one who absolutely is. God is the one who absolutely is. Look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Another question by Moses. What is your name, God? Now this question is more than just wanting to know a name to give to the people of Israel. God has already given him that. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A name in ancient times revealed something about the person that it was attached to. It revealed character, reputation. Who someone was, was tied up in his name. And church, we have many names throughout the Bible given to us of God that give us a robust understanding of who God is. But this one is unique. It's the personal name of God that will be used over 6,500 times throughout the Old Testament. And it would become so sacred to the Jews that they would refuse to take it on their lips in fear of taking it in vain. And God shares this name with Moses in three different ways in verses 14 through 15. 
Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Amen. The actual name doesn't come until the beginning of verse 15, where we would see the word Lord in lower caps, or Jehovah in some translations. Whenever you see Lord capitalized in your Bible, it is the Hebrew consonants Y-H-W-H, which we believe is best pronounced Yahweh. And there's actually some mystery in this name. I'm not sure we can really fully comprehend it at all. But we find clues to its meaning because it's connected to the Hebrew word translated I am in verse 14, which means to be. One commentator points out that God uses variations of his name three times in verse 14, I am, and once in verse 15, the Lord. And this commentator concludes, God's special name means something like he who is, or I am the one who is. God is the one who absolutely is. He simply is. But that really only gets us so far. There's so much left to think about what this is communicating to us. I think when I counted up all the different commentaries and, and things I read, it was like 20 different things that people suggested this means to us. I don't have time to go over all of those but let me give just four to get you thinking. First, saying God is the one who absolutely is communicates God's self-existence. He is not reliant on anything else for his being. He simply exists. He has always existed and he will always exist. Second, saying God is the one who absolutely is communicates that God is independent of outside influences. He always does whatever he pleases and it is always right and good. His character is perfect. His decision-making flawless. His knowledge unsearchable. He has always acted and he will always act perfectly in these ways because he simply is. And he doesn't need counsel. He doesn't need wisdom from anyone else. Third, saying God is the one who absolutely is communicates that nothing compares to God and nothing can stand against God. Think about it. Nothing else in this world can say, I am. Everything else is dependent on something else for life. But God is self-existent. He is an absolute reality. Nothing compares with God, and nothing can stand against God. 
Let me give you just one more. Saying God is the one who absolutely is communicates that God is eternally unchangeable. It is like saying all at one time, I have always been, I will always be, and I am currently being who I am. He is eternally present. He is constant. He never improves. He never changes. And then at the end of verse 15, we see that this is the same God who is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The same God we've been seeing throughout Genesis and Exodus is the God sending Moses to deliver Israel. And the same God who absolutely is, is our God. What an awesome God. What an awesome God. And then this name is given to bolster the next truth that God is revealing to Moses in verses 16 through 22. And that is that God is sovereignly working in all things. Look at what God calls Moses to do in verses 16 through 17. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. God says, Moses, go to the elders of Israel and tell them all that I have said to you. Tell them that I have observed their affliction and I'm about to act according to my promise. Then, Look at what he says in verse 18. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Did you notice the certainty that he gives to Moses of what will happen? They will listen to your voice. And you and the elders shall go to the king of Egypt. Fear will be overcome. Boldness will be given to them. And they will go and request to go make a sacrifice to the God. Moses is not left to wonder what will happen. It is as good as done. Because God is in complete control of what is about to take place. Now, did you notice the initial request of the king of Egypt? It's a simple request to go out into the wilderness to sacrifice to God. And I think by beginning with such a modest request, God was exposing the heart of Pharaoh. Because as we will see, he knows Pharaoh's response. Verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. 
So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. The language here is probably intentional by God because ancient Egyptian texts reveal that Pharaoh is often describing his might by destroying enemies with his strong hand or arm. You see, God is showing Moses, I know Pharaoh's heart, and I'm going to show him who the true sovereign king is. Then it, it gets even more astounding. Verses 21 through 22. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now, church, do you see the sovereignty of God on display? Do you see his power and his might? Typically, warriors are the ones who plunder a defeated nation. But here, it's women by simply asking for treasure. The payment to the Hebrew slaves would be given in full as the heavenly judge renders justice served. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? No one. No one. What an awesome God. Now, believe it or not, there's one more concept of God that we can see the author driving home. And this is one of the sweetest. We sang about it earlier. And that is, God is always faithful to his covenant. Hear that, church. Hear that deep in your hearts. God is always, always, always faithful to his covenant. And we see this as we take the whole passage into consideration. And we notice how it relates to two promises given to Abraham in Genesis 15. Let me remind us of what we've seen in this passage. First, God says who he is in Exodus 3, 6, 15, and 16. Three times. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And this is all pointing to the covenants that he has made to the patriarchs. Secondly, we see twice repeated in Exodus 3, 8, and 17, the promise to bring this people into a very specific land. And finally, in Exodus 3, 21 through 22, God emphasizes bringing judgment on the Egyptians and the rewards of great possessions. Now just listen to the promises that God gave to Abraham hundreds of years before this in Genesis 15, 13 and 14, and 18 through 21. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. 
Then verse 18 of Genesis 15. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The land of who? The Hittites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Jebusites. Specific and detailed promises. A friend of mine back in the U.S. would say, boom. Hundreds of years before, repeated now in this passage and accomplished when Israel left Egypt. Church, our God is always faithful to his covenant. So in this passage, we see that God is the holy, personal, compassionate, present, sovereign God who absolutely is and is always faithful to his covenant. What an awesome God. Yet, there's more. This all gets so much more astounding when we notice an amazing truth that the Apostle John opens our eyes to see through his gospel. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus makes several statements using the Greek phrase, ego ami, which in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint is the translation of I am here in this text. And then in John 8:58, one of those makes an unmistakable link to our passage in Exodus 3, where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was I am. And church, there was no doubt that the Jews present knew that Jesus was claiming to be the great I am because they immediately picked up stones to stone him. So do you see the amazing truth? The holy, compassionate, sovereign God who absolutely is came down to deliver his people from a far greater taskmaster than the Pharaoh of Egypt. He lowered himself to deliver his people from the power of sin and death. He took on humanity to deliver his people. He bore our sins on the cross to deliver his people. And now he promises the new heavens and the new earth, a far greater reality than the land that we spoke of here. And now, instead of dreadfully fearing the presence of God, we can approach the throne of grace with what? Confidence. And now, as Jude verse 24 shows, we can be made to stand in the presence of His glory, blameless, with great joy. No hiding our face. No fearful unwillingness to look. Standing with joy forever in the presence of God. What an amazing reality. And and here's the most beautiful part. How do we obtain this? Do we just try harder? No, we never could. We obtain this by faith. Hebrews 11.6 And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. 1 John 5, 1, 4, and 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
And everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's a beautiful pointer to the necessity of faith. I want you to see this before we close. Did you notice the sign God gave to Moses that he would be with him? He says, this shall be a sign to you in verse 12 that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You see it, church? Moses would have to believe in this sign in faith because he would not receive it until he was out of Egypt. And just like Moses, we exercise faith that Jesus Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law and reconciled us to God. And when he returns, when we are finally delivered from this body of sin and death, we shall be like him and we shall be brought into eternal joy forever, delighting in his presence. The holy, compassionate, sovereign, great I am becomes your God by faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's all it takes. The covenant-keeping God that is always faithful to his covenant becomes your God through faith in Jesus. So if you are hearing this for the first time, or you've heard it before and you have yet to trust in Jesus, trust in Him and receive salvation. And if you are here and you have been walking with Him, continue to trust in His Word, cling to His promises, know that He will always be with you, stand in awe of Him, and worship and adore his holy name. Will you stand with me as I pray this over us? Our Father in heaven, we lift up your holy name. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that is found in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are our God. And so we sing together, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb to be slain. And we give you honor and glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.